So tonight's talk is called Breathe Your Way to Liberation. It was inspired by my last year of practice. And it really felt like a year of coming back to this breath. At first, I did some jhana practice, concentration practice. I wanted to do some jhana practice because if you've read the suttas very much, you may have noticed that the Buddha refers to jhana practice over and over again. And although I had done some jhana practice before, I didn't feel like I had a real clear understanding of it. So because he'd given such an emphasis to it, I wanted to inquire a bit more deeply. And then after I finished jhana practice, I became interested in anapanasati, or mindfulness with breath. It seemed a continuation in some way of the jhana practice, but bringing the aspect of mindfulness into practice a bit more. And then later on, as many of you did, I sat the retreat with Sayadaw Upandita, worked with Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, and really used the breath as the primary object, the place that I returned to over and over again. And this was after having had a few years where I had been doing practice kind of in the way that Joseph described of as from swooping from above. So it felt like coming back to the real foundation of practice. You know, the, the breath had served me well in my practice before, and yet somehow I kind of forgot about it. You know, every now and then there was the occasional awareness of breath. But this was a real coming back to this very breath. So tonight, speaking about how this little breath that we do from birth until death um, can, as Ajahn Fong says, the breath that can take you all the way to Nibbana, you know. So seeing if we can get some sense of how this simple act can take us all the way to liberation or Nibbana. And tonight I'll be speaking about how we can use it both as concentration practice, the deepening of concentration, and also how we use it in insight or vipassana practice. And how actually both of these practices work hand in hand and in some way become quite inseparable. So breath. When we're born, we immediately begin to breathe and we do it until we die. To turn our attention to this breath is to turn our attention to life force. It is a way of contemplating life itself, directly and immediately, without filters, ideas about, but coming in direct contact with this vital life force. It's amazing that it is such a vital life force and how little attention we often give it. You know, before meditation, did we think much about the breath? Probably not, unless we got a cold, unless we're submerged under water and gasping for that next breath. 
we tend to not take so much interest in this breath. I know often when I'm giving uh, beginning meditation instructions, one of the things that I'll say is to be with this breath as if it were your first breath or your last breath. Imagine the interest you would have then. We probably don't remember back to our first breath. Maybe some of us do, but probably most of us don't. What that would have been like. That new experience of the breath entering the body. We don't know what our last breath will be like. We don't know if this breath will be our last breath. We never know. And yet, if it was to be our last breath, would our interest be there? This is a story out of Larry Rosenberg's book, Breath by Breath. It was um, a deadpan exchange between the venerable Webu Sayadaw of Burma and one of his students. Sayadaw, don't all of you breathe in and out? Student, we do breathe, sir. Sayadaw, when do you start breathing in and out? Student, when we are born, sir. Sayadaw, do you breathe in and out when you sit upright? Student, yes, sir. Sayadaw, when you are walking? Student, we do breathe in and out then also, sir. Sayadaw, do you breathe when you are eating, drinking, and working to make a living? Student, yes, sir. Sayadaw, do you breathe when you go to sleep? Student, yes, sir. Sayadaw, are there times when you are so busy that you have to say, sorry, I have no time to breathe now, I'm too busy? Student, there isn't anybody who can live without breathing, sir. So we can't live without this breathing. And yet we have so little interest in this breath. We tend to lack interest because there's so many other things that are happening which seem much more exciting, interesting, hold a greater promise of something better to come. This can happen through addiction to pleasant experience wanting to have uh, life be very comfortable, pleasing, just the way we like it. Or we can get hooked on intensity, looking to experiences that are, are really strong, vibrant, that help us to feel vitally alive. In contrast, the breath doesn't seem to offer so much. We often snub it in the same way that we snub other neutral experiences. They seem unworthy of our full attention. But by being with this breath and bringing our full attention to this breath, we learn to cultivate a presence that is not dependent upon things being a certain way. We learn to bring a respectful attention to experience, to both this breath and all experiences of life. We learn to bring a caring attention, to be present. We learn to be present when things are not so wildly exciting. So it translates 
in learning how to be present for any kind of experience. It, lear- in, it translates into learning how to be present for all kinds of people, not just the people that we like. Yuan Wu says, there are no mundane things outside of Buddhism, and there is no Buddhism outside of mundane things. So we take this breath, which in the beginning may seem so mundane, and we really turn our full attention to it and let this be our practice. Let this be how we deepen our understanding of life through this very simple experience. So working with this breath can be done in the way of concentration practice, using the breath to create stability in the mind, to help us to stop and find stillness. We all need stillness in this chaotic world. Concentration is a deep unification of mind, a one-pointedness of mind, that brings about a centering of the mind. It's where we harness the energy of the mind that is often so scattered, thinking about this and that, all of our past experiences, what might come to be, um, things we wish for, hope for, and collecting all of that energy that usually just runs about and bringing it to something in the present. We aim the mind at the object of our meditation. And this creates a great strength in the mind. It helps to temporarily protect us from the hindrances. And it also helps us to keep from getting lost in the ever-pervasive proliferation of the thinking mind. When we work with the breath as a means of strengthening concentration, it's a great training of the mind. We learn to come back over and over again. As a concentration practice, it doesn't begin by connecting and sustaining the attention with the breath, and it simply stays there over and over. We really have to work at it. You know, so many times we will get lost in thought. And we simply recognize this and come back again, connect once again with the experience of breathing. This connecting and sustaining is not just for when we're developing absorption concentration. It also is relevant when we're working with insight or vipassana, that we need to be able to aim the mind towards an aspect of experience and to sustain the attention. So developing just this much concentration is useful in both samatha or vipassana meditation. (coughs) 
when we work with concentration as in samatha practice or jhana practice, we are working with a single object of concentration. And we work with an unwavering awareness that keeps coming back to this object until the mind becomes completely absorbed into this object of meditation. When we work with the breath in the way of absorption practice, it can be helpful just to pick one point. And it's not that we keep being mindful of all the changing sensations of breath, but we keep being aware of this one point. And with uh, developing this strong concentration, it can be helpful to pick uh, the point at the tip of the, the nostrils or just below the nostrils. Because this is where the breath becomes quite refined. And we find that if we're using the belly, that we're often picking up grosser sensations. So it helps it, the, the concentration to become quite refined. <coughs> There are a number of other objects that can be used in developing absorption practice, such as a candle, light, mantra, colored discs, um, elemental symbols like earth or water, or the Brahma-vihara practices, the divine abidings, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. These can all be used as objects of concentration. So with uh, developing jhana or concentration practice, it's having one single object that we keep returning to over and over. As the mind becomes deeply absorbed, we develop what are called the five jhanic factors. Bitaka, which is the applied thought or the aiming of the mind, which has a way of invigorating the mind and opening the mind which helps to dispel sloth and torpor. The second jhanic factor is vichara, sustained thought, or the immersion of the mind into the object, or the rubbing of the mind with the object. We come to know the experience in the experience. Within the breath, we come to know the breath. It's not separate or analytical. It helps us to anchor the attention into the present moment. It helps us to overcome doubt because there's no space for doubt to arise when the mind is so deeply immersed in the object of meditation. The third jhanic factor is piti often called joy or rapture, or a delight that springs from the mind when it's freed from the hindrances, or a raptness of mind. The definition that makes most sense to me is that of a joyful interest. This joyful interest counteracts aversion. The fourth jhanic factor is sukha, or a happiness of mind born of concentration. It's where there's an ease and a comfort in the mind. The body is uh, pervaded with contentment and calm. 
And with this, we find that restlessness gives way. The last jhanic factor is ikagata, or one-pointedness of mind, that brings the mind to a clear and focused unity. It transforms desire into pure dhamma desire. We find with the deepening of the jhanic factors that we go through different jhanas where some of these factors begin to disappear until there is this focused unity which is focused upon the object of meditation. Although concentration practice in itself doesn't lead to insight, this great strength of mind can then be turned to the changing nature of experience. When we first develop these jhanic states, it trains the mind to be present, to be still, to be calm. And out of this comes a great power when we turn the the mind then to the changing nature of experience. In Vipassana or insight practice, we also develop jhanas, but they they differ in that they are actually insight stages um, as as they are experienced through the sense doors. The mind is not so deeply absorbed in the same way as it is in samatha practice. We find that we are still able to see into the true nature of things. We're still able to see uh, the three characteristics of experience, anicca, or the changing nature of experience, dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness of experience due to its changing nature, or anatta, the insubstantial or impersonal nature of experience. So with the vipassana jhanas, there is a deepening concentration, but we can still see things just as they are. The awareness is fluid. The concentration deepens by staying attentive to whatever is arising in each moment. In the Vipassana jhanas, we find that there's a progression through the happiness of seclusion, to the happiness of concentration, to the happiness of contentment, and then to the happiness of wisdom and equanimity. With the ultimate jhana being the complete release of the mind and clinging to nothing, or touching into the unconditioned, the heart's release. I'd like to focus a little bit right now on the use of the breath as it is in insight or Vipassana meditation and then come back a little bit later to the benefits of concentration in both forms of practice. So mindfulness of breathing. 
we find instruction in the suttas around this in both the Anapanasati Sutta, mindfulness with breath, and the Satipatthana Sutta, or the four foundations of mindfulness, where we use breath as the primary object, or the anchor. Whether we are doing the specific training of Anapanasati with the breath, or using it as our primary object with mindfulness of breathing, we bring our full attention to the experience of just one breath, or one half breath. We find that in doing this very simple act, we have to let go of a lot. We have to let go of the story of who we are, the story that we so often become deeply attached to and identified with, and often find ourselves trapped within this story of who we are. We have to let go of being a very important person. No matter what our role in life may be, a lawyer, doctor, store clerk, mother, father, grandparent, in order to be with this breath, we let go of all of the roles we play in life. We let go of our personal history. We let go of our ideals of what we'd like to become in life, our dreams of life. In order to be with just this breath, we have to let go of everything else. It's the only way that we can come face to face with this breath, with a freshness that allows us to experience life directly. And this is the great training that allows us to experience life directly and immediately. Probably many of us are quite ready to let go of a lot of the rules that we have in life. We're ready to let go of it for a breath, two breaths, or you know, sometimes even a whole sitting free of all of these roles can be quite a delight. Sometimes even to come for a retreat of some duration, we feel really ready not to be anybody. Ready to put down this burden of being this person and all of the responsibilities that come with it. Yet, as we sit and let go of one story, we often find that another story emerges. The story of the meditator that we are. You know, and sometimes this can be a really bad meditator. You know, we turn the attention to the breath and poof, mind shoots off. We're there for a split second. And then we go, oh man, I'm so bad at this. I can't do it. I'll never be able to do it. And we might not even stop there. We think, oh yeah, I know why this is. You know, it's because my parents never really loved me. And I've never been able to do anything right as a result. And we, you know, we start recreating some identity around what we perceive our capacity to be with this breath. Or sometimes it goes the other way. You know, we're with the breath, and another breath, and another breath. And suddenly we're going, oh, look at me. <laughs> look at this. What a good yogi I am. 
And we just start to think that, wow, you know, liberation is right here, right now. We've got it. Just look at this. You know, whatever story we start to create around it, you know, it's just here we've taken this very simple thing of being with one breath, and we start to create another identity based upon how we can do this. In staying with one breath, we have to renounce our judgments of our experience, whether we judge them to be good or bad. And when we see that we've moved into, once again, this story of how we're doing this practice, just to see if we can notice it, name it, judgment. And then, once we can really just call it for what it is, it stops feeding this story, stops feeding this newly created identity. I know one, one time when I was in Burma and I was sitting for a period of six months, this tendency to create stories became so obnoxious. And I couldn't believe it. it didn't matter what happened. The simplest thing would happen. And boom, there we go. A whole new identity. A whole new way of being. And you know, so finally I just came up with this noting that was the stories I tell myself. You know, it just helped to break this habit of really continually uh, recreating this new identity. And you know, this is something we do in life over and over again. And we just aren't aware of it. So when we can notice it in just being with this breath and how we create this story, it will help to guide us in our lives, help to see how we continually do this over and over again. Sometimes in our efforts to be with this breath, we'll be able to stay quite continuously with it. Other times, the awareness will jump around a lot. It can seem easy to stay with the breath when it's full and deep, but much more difficult when it's erratic or shallow. So in the commitment to stay with the breath, no matter how it's being experienced, without trying to do anything to it, without changing it, but just accepting this breath in however it's arising, we have to let go of our ideas of what practice should look like. You know, coming into the practice, the idea that as we calm down, the practice will be, the breath will be pure, long, deep, will really resonate, it will, will be exquisite, and yet sometimes it's just not like that. And if we hold the judgment that it should be one way, we will struggle, we will suffer. We hold in the idea, uh, the idea in our minds that creates more suffering. It brings up the critical mind, you know, that we are no good, we can't do it. And instead, we need to uh, work skillfully let go of this judging mind and rest in the contentment that at least we can turn the attention to the mind even for a quarter of a breath. If we can rest in that, that alone starts to gladden the mind rather than being caught in striving, pushing. 
just resting in however long we can be with this breath. So just being with this breath can bring up a lot of reflections of the way we live our lives, our identities, our judgments, our criticizing, ideas of how things should be. We begin to see these habits of mind, habits of mind that often run our lives. However, when we learn to bring mindfulness to our experience, it turns our experience around. It makes the possibility of this very simple act of being with this breath as being a vehicle for our liberation, as being holding within it the possibility to transform our lives. In the same way that we learn to accept what is happening with this breath, we learn to accept and open to all experiences of life. You can begin to see how even if in our practice we never go beyond the first instruction of being with the breath from the beginning to the middle to the end, we are learning to cultivate non-attachment. We are learning to be with things just as they are without having to add anything to the experience, take anything away from the experience, or without trying to perfect the experience. We begin to taste of things just as they are. Through the simple act of being with this breath, we relinquish or leave behind the complexity of our lives. We train in being present, being present for just this one half breath. We learn to surrender to the unfolding, to however this breath is. And this is also central to practice, learning to surrender to the unfolding, learning to let be, letting this breath be, letting be is the basis of a spiritual life, to renounce, to relinquish, to let be letting things be just as they are. Mindfulness of breath takes us into a great intimacy with this breath. We come to know it directly and immediately. The sensations of breath, heat, warmth, movement, tension, tightness, vibrations, We experience the breath in its impermanence, its changing nature. We begin to see how this breath is 
deeply linked with other arising experience. We begin to know of the uncontrollability and impersonal nature of this breath. Here I'd like to expand upon mindfulness of breathing into the Anapanasati Sutta. This was a lovely discourse that was given by the Buddha one year during the rains retreat. And this was after the monks had already been practicing for three months. And at that time, the Buddha was very happy with what was happening. And he decided that they should continue for another month. So you could imagine what it would be like sitting a three-month retreat and then someone saying to you, hmm, things are going pretty good. Let's just hang in for a bit longer. <laughs> so, and one thing about this sutta, too, is it happened at a time in a rains retreat where many of the elder disciples of the Buddha were also gathered. And they were helping to teach the other monks and uh, people who were present. So a lot of the elders were gathered as the Buddha gave this sutta. And the sutta also has a special significance in that it was the practice that the Buddha was doing on the evening of his liberation. It's a practice that quite beautifully brings together the calm or concentration of mind and insight or vipassana practice. This is Ajahn Buddhadasa's description of Anapanasati. To take one truth or reality of nature and then observe, investigate, and scrutinize it in the mind with every inhalation and every exhalation. Thus, Mindfulness with breathing allows us to contemplate any important natural truth while breathing in and breathing out. And that's often the translation of Anapanasati, mindfulness with in-breaths and out-breaths. Within the Anapanasati Sutta, there's 16 contemplations that are given. And these contemplations are moved through very systematically. They can take a long time in going through, but they provide a very thorough training for the mind. I know myself, I tend to get a little frustrated when doing I want to get ahead to the next one. But um, actually in Ajahn Buddha Dasa's training, every time you sit down, you begin at number one and you move up to however far you can go, and then the next time you sit down, you begin at number one again. So you can see, um, I'll speak a little bit more about the contemplations, but they are a great training in patience, perseverance, and just watching the wanting mind. <coughs> so these contemplations are broken up into triads, um, beginning with, four contemplations that reveal the secrets of the body. It then moves into contemplations that reveal secrets of Vedana, or feeling, and then into the secrets of mind, or citta. And the last is the secrets of Dhamma, or the true nature. In the first four contemplations, it speaks about becoming 
familiar with the breath, you know, bringing this quality of mindfulness to the breath, investigating the qualities of breath, mindful of the experience, and then moving into seeing the relationship between breath and body and the interconnectedness between the two. For example, we can notice as the breath becomes calmer, the body can become calmer. The breath can lead the mind into stillness. And this alone can be a great training for daily life. You know, that we learn how to be calmer within the chaos of life, to find this place of stillness with life, which can be in our lives simply remembering to breathe, to come back to this breath. And if you've done that in situations where you're fearful, um, agitated, you know that it can have an immediate impact. Even just one breath can help to break the um, pattern of being caught up in fear, anger. I've also noticed through these contemplations that at times when there's a lot of pain in the body, if one also stays aware of the in-breath and the out-breath, it is as if this calmness that comes from being aware of the breath holds this pain. You know, one time in doing Anapanasati, I went through a period where it was like every vertebrae in my back felt like it was exploding. And each time it exploded, there was excruciating pain. And yet, it all happened with the mind remaining very calm. Awareness of each inhalation, exhalation. These contemplations then moving into breathing with Vedana, or feelings. In this exploration, we actually learn to work with piti, sukha, joy, happiness. Vedanas are said to be a great conditioner of our experience. You know, with pleasant Vedana, it's often we chase after the experience. With unpleasant Vedana, we push it away. With neutral Vedana, we tend to not notice, become disconnected. And so, with this breathing with piti or, or sukha, we're learning to be with Vedanas that often in our lives we completely chase after. Pleasant experience. We want it. And through these contemplations, we learn to become master of these Vedanas. And we learn to see how they do condition experience, how they work in our minds. And then we learn to calm these Vedanas. The next triad is learning to breathe with mental formations. We actually learn to contemplate the mind, experience the mind, gladden the mind, steady the mind, and liberate the mind through the working with mental formations. The last triad moves into what we could call pure vipassana. It's where we're working with each inhalation, exhalation, through contemplating impermanence, through contemplating the fading away 
through contemplating the quenching, cessation, or contemplating what um, sometimes gets called relinquishing or throwing back. And we do this with each inhalation and exhalation, contemplating dhammas directly. This is from Ajahn Buddhadasa. To understand Dhamma sufficiently is the first step, but understanding is not the end. We now see that as the mind begins to let go, to loosen up its attachments, these attachments dissolve away. We experience this until the point where attachment is extinguished. Once attachment is quenched, the final step is to experience that the mind is free. Everything is free. The Pali texts use the phrase, throwing back. The Buddha said, at the end, we throw back everything. This means that we have been thieves all of our lives by appropriating the things of nature as I and mine. We have been stupid and have suffered for it. Now we have become wise and are able to give things up. At this last step of practice, we realize, oh, it isn't mine, it belongs to nature. We throw everything back to nature and never again steal anything. He goes on to say, to learn the secret of Dhamma is to know that we should be attached to nothing whatsoever and then never again to become attached to anything. All is liberated. The case is closed. We are finished. Anapanasati, taking us through these different contemplations of body and mind, taking us all the way to liberation. So now speaking a little bit about the benefits of concentration as um, our experience both in absorption and insight practice. It's important to develop concentration because it excludes distraction. It becomes this unifying force in the mind. It allows us to connect and to sustain the attention with the object of meditation. We use concentration a lot in our lives, whether it's to read a book, to watch TV, to carry on a conversation, uh, whether we're a burglar, we're using some degree of concentration. But through our practice, we develop wholesome concentration or right concentration. And this is not a moralistic judgment, but right concentration is concentration that leads to less suffering or the end of suffering. Right concentration is where um, the mind is freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. Wrong concentration is where some aspect of greed, hatred, or delusion is present within the experience. Concentration helps to gladden the mind. Uh, This unification of mind has a very calming effect, which helps the mind to settle. 
And this gives us a temporary refuge or resting place. We find that in order to open to our suffering, that there has to be a degree of calmness. And in some sense, we have to be happy enough to investigate our suffering. It's very, very difficult to do when we're just caught in the suffering. And that's why, you know, many times it's helpful to do periods of concentration when we find that we have been quite depressed, down, hard on ourselves, because it helps to gladden the mind. We can use concentration in times when we've become mentally tired because it has this restful quality. This restful quality can also have a strong healing energy. I experienced this a couple times very strongly in my own practice. The first time was um, when I first came to this Burmese form of meditation. And it happened at a time in my life when I'd been sick for a number of years, you know, close to seven years I'd been sick. For a long time, nobody knew what was wrong with me, and I just got sicker and sicker. Uh, It turned out to be chronic fatigue, something that's quite prevalent and common today. But at that time, not much was known about it. It took a number of years to diagnose. And so, you know, I had um, this chronic fatigue, would find that, you know, many times I would have to sleep for long periods of time. Sometimes I would sleep 24 hours, you know, only just barely waking up and feeling quite awful even after that length of time of sleeping, often tired. And then I went off to a retreat. It was just a four-day retreat um, with a man named Alan Clements. Maybe some of you have heard of him. I don't remember much of the instruction he gave at the retreat, but I do remember that at that retreat, I was with breath after breath. For whatever reasons, I was with the in-breath, the out-breath, the in-breath, the out-breath. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and immediately there was awareness of this breath. And besides that, not much else happened at the retreat. You know, fine. Go to a retreat, you breathe. Okay, that was fine. That, That felt good. I went home. And it was like I was a different person. Um, You know, I had so much energy. I started sleeping four hours a night. And this was a person who had slept around the clock. I had so much more vitality in my daily life. And, you know, there was no magic experience. It was just the healing energy that had come through this connecting and sustaining the attention with the breath. I experienced it only recently when I went to Gaia House and did jhana practice. Uh, I arrived there, I had a cold, and the morning I went into retreat, my back went out really bad. I started sitting, and within almost breaths, my cold went away. You know, I'm kind of, (laughs) that's kind of interesting. And then as the practice went on, I could feel that all of the pain in my back was just disappearing. And, you know, It was like touching into the healing energy that we don't do the practice to get this healing energy. You know, if we did it with that purpose in mind, it probably wouldn't happen. But it's like a side benefit. It just happens when the mind is at rest, at peace. You know, when we experience that in Vipassana practice, 
when there's that deep ease and peace, you know, that suddenly our pains can start disappearing. Um, you know, I experienced recently where I was doing yoga to help my uh, practice, my sitting practice. And then there came a point where the yoga seemed so much cruder than pure awareness. And we discover this in our practice. <coughs> strong concentration also helps us uh, to stay protected from the hindrances. It keeps the mind pure. Concentration becomes this powerful force that we can turn towards the changing nature of experience or seeing things just as they are. Concentration is not standalone, no, even if we at first do it through samatha practice. It isn't a means to an end, but it can be then turned towards this changing nature of experience and becomes a very powerful force. Buddha once said, there are two things, monks, that partake of knowledge, calm and insight. When calm is developed, so is mind. Through developed mind, lust is abandoned. When insight is developed, so is wisdom or right understanding. Through developed insight, ignorance is abandoned. So we find that calm and insight cannot be separated, that they support each other. And we learn to work skillfully with calm and insight. We know that when the mind is deeply agitated, we can cultivate calm, stillness. And when calm is prevalent, we can turn the mind to discerning wisdom through the development of insight. There's a line from a sting song, every breath you take, every breath you take can be a vehicle for liberation. The gift of this breath, this breath that is a sustaining life force and which we rely upon can also lead us to the sure heart's release working with this breath through both the cultivation of concentration or calming the mind and also the development of insight. And through this we dispel ignorance. Santikaro Bhikkhu, who was the translator for Ajahn Buddha Dasa's book, Mindfulness with Breathing, in his introductory note says, Mindfulness with breathing is a meditation technique anchored in our breathing. It is an exquisite tool for exploring life through subtle awareness and an active investigation of breathing and of life. The breath is life. To stop breathing is to die. The breath is vital, natural, soothing, revealing. It is our constant companion. Wherever we go, at all times, the breath sustains life and provides the opportunity for spiritual development. In practicing mindfulness upon and through breathing, 
we develop and strengthen our mental abilities and spiritual qualities. We learn to relax the body and calm the mind. As the mind quiets and clears, we investigate how life unfolds as experienced through the mind and body. We discover the fundamental reality of human existence and and learn to live our lives in harmony with that reality. And all the while, we are anchored in the breath, nourished and sustained by the breath, sensitive to breathing in and breathing out. This is our practice. So let's just sit for a moment. Our practice, breathing in, breathing out, mindful of this experience, surrendering to this experience, allowing the Dhamma to reveal itself through the knowing of this experience. May any goodness or wholesomeness that arises from our practice, may this energy be dedicated to the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere. Continuing on breath by breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.